Welcome to Sports Spectrum, the sports and faith podcast that brings Jesus back into the conversation. Here's your host, Jason Romano. This episode of Sports Spectrum's podcast with Jim Lairitz, former World Series champion with New York Yankees, 1996 and 1999, is brought to you by Compassion International, the most trusted child development ministry in the world. To find out how you can help make a difference in a child's life, go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum, and for $38, you can help release a child from poverty. Go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum and consider sponsoring a child today. Today on the podcast, one of the more fascinating interviews that we've done here at Sports Spectrum with two-time World Series champion Jim Lairitz. Jim was undrafted uh, coming into his professional baseball career, signed with the Yankees, made his Major League Baseball debut June 8th of 1990. He tells a great story about that Major League Baseball debut that he made against the Orioles. Really awesome story there. And played for 11 seasons. He was with the Yankees from 1990 to 1996, won a World Series in 96, that memorable historic run for the Yankees, and hit one of the more famous home runs in Yankee World Series history in Game 4 of that World Series in 1996 against Atlanta, which helped tie the game late and allowed the Yankees to come back from a 2-0 deficit to win that World Series and beat the defending champion Braves in six games. And Lairitz was a big part of that. World Series team. And then he was on a bunch of different teams, went to the Angels, the Rangers, the Red Sox, the Padres, where he was in another World Series in 1999 with San Diego, and then back to the Yankees as a part of that uh, World Series team in 1999. And then there in 2000, finished his career with the Dodgers in 2000, and then retiring. But this story, this interview with Jim Lairitz was one of those where I think I asked four questions in 40 minutes. And it was fascinating because Jim's story of his baseball career is, you know, an important one, obviously, and and what he's known for. But I asked him really just to kind of dive deep into his faith and where that journey began and how his faith started to take shape. And he went and told as transparent a story over a basically a 12-year span starting in 2003-2004 that took him all the way until he was married in March of 2016 and the culmination of going through a lot. We're talking about divorce, custody battles, uh, a court case, a DUI accident, uh, just incredible amounts of things that he went through that weren't necessarily good in his life. And somewhere in there, developing, reestablishing, and reconnecting with Jesus through reading this book called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, a pastor at Saddleback Church, and one of the most famous books, one of the most read books in all of the world, The Purpose Driven Life, and it's impacted so many, and Jim Lairitz is one of those people. Just sit back and listen. Jim Lairitz is a really good storyteller and explaining his testimony fascinating story two-time world series champion jim lairitz joining us here on sports spectrum take a listen (laughs) 
Jim, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jace. It's good to talk to you. Uh, let's start with, I guess, the baseball season. We're taping this now. It's 2019. We're sort of in the middle of the 2019 MLB season. It's been almost 20 years since you last played, which blows my mind. How much, how much do you miss just being out there and playing and being on the field as a player? Well, you know, you, you miss the camaraderie. You miss the opportunity to, you know, um, you know, hang out with the guys. And I think the one thing that none of us miss is the travel. Yeah. Um, you know, you look back on it now and you, you realize just how much you were really on the road during your playing days. And it, it was, a, it was a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I still get back to New I live in California now and I get back to New York, maybe 10 or 12 days a month, which is for a lot of people that they think that's a lot. I'm like, well, you should go back to playing baseball because when you're playing baseball, every three days you're, you're flying somewhere else. It's so true. Now I'm going to go back a ways here because I remember watching you play in the minor leagues with the Albany Colony Yankees back in the late 1980s. I was a teenager growing up in Albany, New York, and I just always remember watching. They had a good group of guys that that made the majors in those teams in the Double A era of the Albany Colony Yankees in the late 80s. Was that something as as you started to develop into your major league dream? Was baseball always the dream for you as a kid growing up? Well, no, actually, basketball was my number one love. And, uh, you know, it, after my junior year of high school, my dad basically pulled me aside and said, okay, you got some great scholarships to go to college and play basketball. Mm. But you probably, you know, being five foot ten white and you can't dunk, he said, uh, you're probably not going to make it in basketball past college. But I have a few scouts that say that you have a good opportunity to get drafted your senior year for baseball. What do you want to do? You know, what do you want to concentrate the most on? And I said, well, if I can't play pro basketball, I want to play pro something. So yeah. I still played on the basketball team my senior year. I still you know, led the team in scoring and everything else. But instead of staying afterwards, shooting free throws, shooting extra shots, I went upstairs to the indoor batting cage and took batting practice to get ready for the baseball season because I knew my senior year would be the most important. So it was it was my second love, but uh, you know it, it was the right choice to make. End up you know to end up. In, playing baseball yeah it seemed to work out okay i would say with a nice long career <laughs> in the major leagues now let's go to june 8th 1990 that's the day if you don't remember the exact day i'm sure you do though that you made yes, your I major do. league baseball debut what do you remember about yeah. that day that moment take us back to that time well you know i remember you know you know number one never being drafted you know that was that was the big thing i was never you know, consider the top prospect. And when you're in the minor leagues and you're not a drafted player, yeah. you know, I, one of the reasons I had to learn to play different positions was because in double A, they drafted a catcher out of Stanford university named John Ramos. And he was their number one pick. Well, guess who was catching at the time I was yeah. when they drafted him. They said, Oh, he's coming here next week. You're going to learn how to play the outfield. You know, that was kind of the, unfortunately the treatment you get not being a drafted player. Yeah. Um, but, you know, all, all the hard work, you know, I grew up with Pete Rose, he was my idol, all that hard work, you know, you know work out working the next guy is what I did. And fortunately, uh, June 7th, I got called into the manager's office after a doubleheader in Toledo, and I went 0 for 6, slammed my helmet a few times, I was a little bit ticked off, and I thought I was getting called in the manager's office to get, you know, to get yelled at. And all of a sudden, he said, well, wait a minute, I, I don't want to say anything until Alan Mills gets in here. And Alan Mills was one of our pitchers. Yeah. And then, then I, you know, then I was trying to like trying to figure out what was happening. And Alan came in the office and he said, "Listen, because this is the first time I get to do this, and I'm thrilled." 
you two are going to the big leagues tomorrow. Hmm. And it, it was, you know, it was one o'clock in the morning after a doubleheader. Uh, I got on the phone, called my dad up, my mom up and say, Hey, are you awake? And they were half out of it. They're like, what are you calling us for? What's wrong? <laughs> I said, I said, nothing. I'm going to the big leagues tomorrow. They're like, what? Yeah. So that was, that was quite a thrill. So I ended up, Alan and I had to get a rental car, drive back to, we were in Toledo. So we had to drive back to Columbus, get our belongings and then get on a plane the next morning and head to uh, Baltimore. And so, yeah, so June, June 8th was my, my debut in Baltimore. And, you know, Alan and I, we didn't get there until after batting practice was over with. So we didn't think that we'd be involved in the game at all. And Buck Showalter came up to me in about the sixth inning and said, hey, start getting loose because you never know what stuff might do. He might put you in a pitch hit for somebody. So sure enough, I went up the stairs. I started stretching. And I was watching the TV. And they were warming up Greg Olson who was their number one closer at the time for Baltimore Yeah, and a right-hander. So I'm like, okay, I'm never going to hit. He's a right-hander and he's the best closer in the game right now. I said, I'm not going to get a chance to hit. And then sure enough, you have to get loose. Uh, Stump looks down at the end of the bench and said, Hey, you're hitting for Tolleson. I'm like, Oh, okay. So there was two outs. Steve Fax came up to bat. If he doesn't get on, I don't get, I don't get to hit. He gets on base. And then, of course, I get my first major league at bat, end up working the cap to get a, to get a base hit, drive in sacks. Two times. It was Greg, Greg Olson's first blowing save of the year. He had been 13 for 13 saves. And uh, you know, ended up – So, but I had the best of both as my debut. The first was the base hit to tie the game up. Then the bottom half of the year, I was playing third base. We had bases loaded, and I made a great diving stop and made it try to get the force at force out at home to save the game. And I short hop Matt Noakes mm. and we end up losing the game. Mm. So I kind of had a, 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 a great debut to get the base hit, but then unfortunately the error to lose the game. So it was kind of a, a, a bittersweet beginning. Yeah. But I mean, just the fact that you miss batting practice and you show up and you have that big of a part in a game that, probably you didn't even expect to be playing in is pretty telling. And that's, that's what, ba- what makes baseball so great though, right? That you just never know. Well, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, Buck Walter used to tell me all the time. He said the reason he would pitch in and do stuff like that is because he knew that I was always, you know, mentally going to be ready for that situation, even though if I wasn't playing and starting that day. Mm. And, uh, you know, for some reason, you know, that, that, I kind of thrived in, in that type of atmosphere of, of pitch hitting late in the game. Hmm. Jim Laritz is our guest here on Sports Spectrum. We're going to talk about, I know you had a, a really sort of rededication of your faith in God later in your journey here, but where was faith growing up and maybe as you were coming up into the big leagues for you, uh, was God, was Jesus, was the Bible, any of that a part of your life? Oh, yeah, big part. My father was very, very strict with the religion. He uh, made us go to church every Sunday. No excuses. Uh, we had to go to, I had to go to Bible school, Bible study school on Wednesdays. Uh, you know, and so he was, he was pretty strict with us as far as, you know, staying to that schedule. And, you know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, I grew up around it. And unfortunately, I think when, you know, when I started to, to, you know, start skipping church and things like that is basically when I signed my first minor league contract mm. and got away from home for the first time and, you know, the lifestyle and everything else. But the one thing that I was really, really kind of, um, I think to turn my face a little bit was the fact that, um, 
it was it was it was almost back then a weakness that they thought if you were a Christian. Hmm. And a lot of guys wouldn't show their faith. A lot of guys wouldn't, you know, uh, wouldn't do that because, you know, a, a lot of the guys that I had first met in the minor league area uh, were guys that were coming off addictions, were coming off, you know, uh, other issues that they turned to God, and God was their new addiction. And I was like, listen, I don't have that problem. You know, I, I, that's it's you know, and and again, a, a sign of weakness. Now we had, you know, we had Bible study every Sunday in the big leagues. Uh, you know, they would have a pastor come in on Sundays in the weight room and I would go every Sunday, but then, you know, Monday to Saturday, I wasn't so much, you know, that good Christian boy that my dad brought me up to be. Hmm. Um, and I think I kind of lost that. And then of course I, my second marriage, I married someone who, uh, I, it was not religious at all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she liked the partying lifestyle. We kind of got caught, I got caught up in that for a while and. I think that's when I kind of went away from, you know, again, still went to every Sunday, but was not, uh, not, not living a very Christian life outside of that. And, um, you know, I got divorced from her in 2003. And I think that was the beginning of my rededication to, to God was, uh, you know, 2003, I had an opportunity to come back and play. I was just got, I had just got divorced. I just had gotten custody of, you know, of the kids. Yeah. And the San Diego Padres offered me a contract to come back and play. And the judge in Florida, my family court judge in Florida, told me that if I went back to play baseball, that even though my wife was a drug addict and had major issues, uh, that my two-year-old, my seven-year-old, my nine-year-old would have to go back and live with her because I would, I would be out playing baseball. Hmm. And as soon as that happened, I called up my father and I asked my dad, you know, Dad, what do you think? And he's like, Jimmy, this is your life. I can't tell you what to do. You know how I raised you, but I can't tell you what to do. And um, he said, you know, I tell you what I've always told you. Pray on it and go to bed tonight and hopefully God will give you an answer. Uh, and so I did. I prayed all day that day and was waiting for a sign or something to tell me what I should do. Because at the time, I had no money left because I fought for custody and I used all my money for my savings mm. to, uh, to get custody of the boys. And they were offering me between a 500 to a million dollar contract. So it was, it was a tough decision. Yeah. Yeah. I went to bed that night and about three o'clock in the morning, my youngest son, my two year old woke up in his crib screaming and yelling. And I grabbed him out of the crib and I held him and put him in bed with me and calmed him down. And all I could think about was, how would I leave this kid behind in a drug addicted household, you know, with a mother who may not wake up, who may not even be home? Yeah. You know, what, what would that be like for these boys to grow up like that? And that was my sign from God. You know, I called my dad the next day and said, Dad, I got my sign. And guess what? I'm not going back to play. And, you know, he said to me, he said, Jimmy, he said, I was so proud of you as a kid to make the big leagues, to hit those home runs in the World Series, to win those World Series. But you made the first decision as a man today that I'm very proud of. Wow. And that was the beginning of that. And it's, I started getting back into church. I started getting back into, you know, giving my kids a, a, a steady place. And then between 2003 and 2007, I had a very successful TV radio career. Um, you know, was, was, was doing very well doing that for the MLB.com. Yeah. And then eventually ESPN. And then, unfortunately, in 2007, you know, uh, uh, Christmas Eve, I was in church, and uh, the pastor of the church was given the, the message, and he said, if anybody has not dedicated their life, he was talking about the Lord's Prayer. 
Yeah. And he says, the Lord's Prayer doesn't say, give us our Lord our weekly bread or our monthly bread. It says, give us our Lord our daily bread. And if any of you have not committed to a daily walk with God, please come forward now. And I started to step forward. I grabbed my youngest son, Austin's hand, oldest son, Austin's hand, and said, come with me. And he's like, Dad, no, this is your choice. And I didn't take the final step. Mm. And three nights later is when I had my accident. Yeah. And it was one of those things, Jason, I'm telling you that, you know, it was such a traumatic experience for both families, you know, the, the woman that lost her life and for, you know, my family, my boys and my our family to go through um, because it was just one of those you know, situations that, you know, both drivers, we were both drinking and driving. Neither one of us should have been driving. Uh, and unfortunately for her, she ran a red light and didn't have a seatbelt on. And the accident caused the, her ejection and the ejections what ended up killing her. Uh, and, you know, that that was uh, such an unfortunate situation. Uh, to be involved in. And I remember about six days after finally, you know, taking it all in, my mom and dad came down from Cincinnati to be with me, uh, to help me you know, do, do everything that we were doing. And I asked my dad when he first got here, I said, please take me to the, uh, to the church. And we went to church and I met with the pastor and, you know, he just said to me, he said, Jimmy, he said, listen, God's been knocking at your door and you just haven't listened this is God's way. God could have taken you that night. That could have been you. Sure. Just as easily. And he said, the fact that God left you here, he left you here for a reason, for a purpose. And he said, you're not going to know what that is while you go through the storm. But when you get through it, you'll see what, what God's, God was doing. And, uh, you know, started, you know, he had me, he was telling me to read the Bible and yeah. I was really struggling with the Bible reading and trying to understand it. And um, he gave me a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it changed everything for me. Within 10 chapters of reading that book, uh, I knew that God did lead me there for a purpose and what the purpose of my life was to to go out and change, you know, to, to speak and to change other people's lives. And of course, talk about you know, the dangers of drinking and driving and, you know, with young kids and, you know, everything that had happened. Uh, and I, you know, that, 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 that book, changed my entire life. I've heard many, I've read this book, by the way, and I, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to to speak at Saddleback Church. What a great place, by the way. Your name actually came up by a couple of people who were in attendance when I was there. I was at a Man Up event, I think they call it, um, yep. a couple of years ago, and it was a week after Andy Pettit, your former teammate, was there. And okay. uh, a couple of people said, you need to talk to Jim Lairitz. You need to hear his story. And I didn't, I remembered you as a player, but I didn't really know your sort of faith journey and your story. And they said, well, it involves a purpose-driven life. And then I, I just kind of did a little research and didn't really find a, a, you know, a lot of details. And thankfully, we were able to get connected now. And that book, I'm just going to, I want you to talk a little bit more about why that book made such a difference because I've read it and it is, I believe it's the second most selling book maybe behind the Bible, at least in the last 20 years or so. That book has impacted a lot of people uh, a lot of ho- high-profile people as well, if I remember correctly. Tell me what, oh, yes. what that book yeah. did for you, The Purpose Driven Life. Did it just help make sense of what you couldn't understand in the Bible? Well, yeah. I mean, it was just – it was so easy. Again, I'm not a big reader. Yeah. Uh, I've been a big reader. And when, when he handed it to me, he said, you only have to read one chapter a night. I was like, listen, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but but the way it's written and the way it, you know the way it describes and it was the first time that um, I was able to be able to say okay read this read this chapter read what it's about and then apply it to your life mm. apply it to what you're going through apply it to you know your everyday thing and it was the first time that I had been taught that uh, as far as religion goes and it was so freeing to really hold yourself accountable. And I think that was, you know, to me, that's what I always tell people is it's a book that really, it's it's about religion because, you know, there's a lot of people that get turned off when I talk, first start talking about religion. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's a religious book, but it's it's a book that is so, it could, could be written for anything besides religion. It could be, you know, I know people that use the same, uh, you know, the principles that they have in the book um, for business, for relationships, for everything. And I think that's why that book is so powerful and, and, and so many people read it. Um, and really what it did for me, Jason, even more than that, is what brought me to my now wife, Michelle. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in New York, opening day, 2009, and I was not invited uh, by the Yankees to the new stadium opening up because I was going through trial. Yeah. And my one of my best friends in Florida said, dude, you're not missing this. I'm taking you up there. So he bought tickets for us, got a plane flight, got us a hotel room. And we went out there for opening day. Uh, it was a one o'clock game. And then after the game was over with, I went out to dinner with him. And we were at this restaurant in New York called Elaine's. And then walks this really beautiful young lady. Uh, at the time, you know, as I said, I was going through trials. So I wasn't thinking about dating or anything else. And she walked into the bar and with her girlfriend. And they were. Get, it was a pretty crowded night at the restaurant. And I could see her getting annoyed with the people that were at the bar because a couple of drunk guys were bothering her. And I just got eye contact with her. And I said, hey, are you okay? And you know, mounted to her. And she said, she shook her head, no. Hmm. So I, we had two seats at our table. And I walked up to her and I grabbed her by the elbow and said, hey, honey, our table's ready. And I pulled her out of the crowd, hmm. her and her girlfriend. So they sat down with us. Now, she had no idea who I was. No clue. You know, <laughs> Elaine's, Elaine's restaurant was like a literary place. It was where all the authors and writers and playwrights went. Okay. Not athletes, you know. And... um so she's, you know, she sits down at the table and we start talking and she says, oh, what are you here for? And he said, I'm here for opening day. And she goes, oh, what's opening? <laughs> <laughs> I still laugh every time I can. Yeah. Like, they're like, she didn't know what opening day was? I go, no, that's how clueless about baseball she was. So so we started talking and she was going through divorce and, and we were just talking about life. And I, you know, I was telling her what I was going through in my divorce and I didn't mention anything about the accident. Didn't, you know that that subject never really came up. Yeah. And then later in the night, we were at, we were we were getting ready to go to one of my buddy's places, and uh, it was that right down the street because I found out it was her birthday. And I said, "Let me take you to my buddy's place for our birthday for your birthday." And so her and her girlfriend eventually said, "Yes, they'll go with us." So they went with us, and it was a bar that I used to hang out in in New York when I was a player, and I knew the owners. And you know, it, it was opening day, so the leftover crowd from opening day watching the game we're still in there mm. and i walk in with her and she has like i said she had no clue and all of a sudden everybody in the bar lay rats king what's happening and they're all hugging <laughs> me and like you're gonna be okay and yeah and people are taking pictures and she's like who are you oh no <laughs> and I, yeah and i said do me a favor go down to the end of the bar i'll be there in a minute and i gotta say hello to some people and things like that so she goes down with her girlfriend and so I grabbed the owner of the bar, Mark, and I go, Mark, come down here with me. So I walked down there and said, these are two girls I just met from California. You're going to have to you know, get this girl a drink. It's her birthday. I said, she's going to need it for this story. <laughs> so, 
So he gives her the dragon and she looks at me and she says, why, why aren't you drinking? And I said, well, I'm going through this trial. And she's like, wait a minute, are you from Florida? And so I said, yeah. And she goes, you're kidding me. She goes, the bartender at Elaine's restaurant has been telling me about this really nice guy I should meet. He told me this about six months ago and I can't believe that you're the guy. Wow. And she goes, I can't, you know, she says, what, you know, what, what's going on? So I told her, you know, I told her, I used to play for the Yankees. I had these World Series on none. My nickname was the King. That's why they were calling me that. And, you know, and I'm going through this DUI manslaughter trial um, where I'm facing 15 years in jail. I, you know, I told her I had custody of my boys. The whole, you know, the whole thing that was going on. And she looked at me and she said, how in the heck do you seem so normal? Hmm. She said, you know, I would not have even guessed that anything was wrong in your life, you know, cause you seem just, and I said to her, I said, well, you know, I read this book called the purpose driven life by this pastor named Rick Warren. And she looked at me like, like almost like a ghost. Yeah. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, that's the pastor of my church. I go to Saddleback. Wow. That was our initial meeting. <laughs> um, and again, again that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And we didn't think anything you know, past that. Uh, the next day, you know, we met for breakfast and we started talking and she was leaving. And I said, well, do you mind if we exchange numbers? And she said, yeah. And so I gave her my number and you know, I said, if, if everything, you know, by that, at that time, my trial was supposed to be in three months. And um, so she said, you know, she's like, listen, you know, let me know, call me after everything's done. And we, you know, maybe we'll, you know, see, see what happens. So she and I, you know, she left, I left, I went back to Florida. She went back to California. And, um, you know, I think it was in July, my ex-wife uh, had lost her house, lost her job and was living on the street. And my kids begged me to take her in. And I was going through my rebirth of God. And, you know, I talked to my pastor at the church and he's like, this, I don't think it's a great idea, but you know, it is their mother. Yeah. And maybe you can help. You know, maybe you know, God wants you to help. Well, she moved in after about two months being there. She, uh, she started not coming home and coming back to the house. And uh, I started getting suspicious and I ended up going in when she was out one night, I went into the room that she was staying at and found drugs and beer and I mean, everything. Mm. And so I reached out and said, listen, you need to come get your stuff and you need to get out. You know, this is not part of the, you know, because she had been going to meetings and going to things and trying to you know, straighten herself out. And then all of a sudden she relapsed again. And I said, listen, I, I can't be part of this and I'm not going to put the kids through this. Yeah. So long story short, um, two nights later, uh, I'm asleep in my room and there's a bang on the door. and It's the police. And I open up my bedroom door and they're already in my foyer of my house. And they're like, put your hands behind your back. And they end up arresting me. And I said, what's going on? And they said, you know, your wife is next, ex-wife is next door. She says you beat her up. Oh. And I was like, what? I said, I didn't even see her. Now but the weird, you know, I want to get too much into the story, but the long story short of it is that all three kids were still sleeping in the house. There was no, there was no proof that I, that, that anything had ever happened. Yeah. She told three different lies to them as far as what really happened because she was drunk. And long story short, I ended up, I ended up going to jail. I sat in jail for 12 days. Now this was really kind of where my faith was tested. You know, after being, believing and, you know, doing what I thought was God-like, you know, yeah. giving this opportunity for, I was sitting in jail going, God, why is this happening? You know, I didn't touch her. You didn't, I didn't even see her. You know, why is this happening? What is this? What is the purpose for this? And 
all I could think about was as much as I was getting upset and getting angry, my brother-in-law, who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, mm. all I could think about was him and going, you know what? My situation's temporary. I'll get through this. You know, and I, I really, after I got out, I thank my brother-in-law for him giving me the strength yeah. not to let it overwhelm me and, and to keep my faith. You know, by the time that I, the time that I was in jail, uh, and then sure enough, we went in front of the judge. The judge said, "Obviously, this nothing happened here, Mr. Laritz, because if I had been guilty, if if he would have thought for one second I even had a confrontation with her, he would have kept me in jail till my trial, right? And because it would have been a violation of my bond." And after four or five days of the hearing, hearing the police talk about what they what they witnessed, you know, they said they, they didn't think anything had happened that she had done it to herself. And long story short, it was if she continued to to want to uh, press charges that she would go to jail for false charges. And so they dropped it and wow. they let me out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, it was you know, one of those situations that it was a test of faith. And so we got through that. And during that time, Michelle was on vacation in California. I mean, uh, Arizona. And one of her girlfriends called and said, Hey, you know, that guy you met, you know, there's art, there's a thing in the, in, on, on TV about him. He just got arrested. And so she knew, she's like, oh my God, she said, she told her mother, I can't believe that, you know, what Jim said, his, his fear came true, that she would do something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that was her, because yeah, yeah, I had told Michelle that was, that was her MO, yeah. uh, you know, when, when she was faced with confrontation or, or, you know, when she did something wrong. So long story short, she, Michelle reached back out to me and we started talking. And from that day on, from July on, we started, we talked on the phone every single night. We talked about, you know, she was going back to church and she was starting to do the 101 class at Saddleback to become a full-time member at Saddleback. And yeah. She ended, up, she ended up, through our conversations, she ended up getting baptized and we shared that together on the phone. And in October of that year, um, I it made her a bet that if the Yankees beat the Angels in the playoffs that and go to the World Series, that she would come to meet and visit me in New York. We'd get together and meet in New York. Yeah. And it would have been the first time that we had met since opening day. So, of course, you know, I said, if the Angels win, I'll go to California and we'll go to the games in California. So, yeah, I just wanted to see her. So I made a good bet. <laughs> That's a good bet. You can't lose either yeah. way. <laughs> exactly. I get to see her no matter what. Well, the Yankees, of course, that was 2009, ended up beating the, the Angels and going to the World Series. And I said, okay, I'm going to send you a plane ticket. And she said, well, wait, I have to see if my ex-husband can watch the kids because I, you know, I, I can't be gone that long. And sure enough, her ex-husband couldn't watch the kids, so she couldn't come. So I was kind of bummed. So that year, but this time, the Yankees have not, like I said, they weren't hiring me for anything. I wasn't doing anything for them. But Moose Scourin and Hank Bauer, two former Yankees, had their own fantasy camp that I had been doing for years. It used yes. to be the Mickey Mantle camp. And Moose called me up and said, Jimmy, we want you out here for our, you know, for our thing. And he said, I don't care what you're going through. You, know, you need to be around us. He said, can you come out and do the camp here in Arizona in November? I said, absolutely. So sure enough, went out there and I called up Michelle and I said, hey, how far are you from, you know, uh, from Arizona? And she said, oh, I'm about a six-hour drive. And I said, well, how would you like to come and spend a couple of days and let's get together? You know, make up for our bet that we made. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know what? Yes, I'll come, I'll come visit. So she came out. She drove out to Arizona and uh, she came out and stayed with me for five days. And during that five days, she did all the events with me and she kind of came around and all of the guys that were, you know, the fantasy camp guys were, wait a minute, how long have you two been dating? And we're like, uh, this trip. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we, 
they're like, you guys look like you've been in love forever. And I'm like, so we really got close. And then after she decided she left Arizona driving back, she's like, she picked up the phone and called me and she's like, you know what? I'm going to see if we can make this work. And, uh, you know, we got together and, you know, we made a couple of trips to New York and I made a couple of trips to California over the next year, but my trial kept getting delayed. And, you know, it was, it was July of, you know, 2010 and it got delayed again. And we finally had a, a, a date in November. Um, and she came out to see me, I want to say like January or February. Um, and she said, you know what? I'm starting to fall in love with you. And I'm scared because I don't know what's going to happen. Hmm. And I said, well, why don't you come over to the house? Because she had not met, I had not met her girl. She had not met my boys. We were keeping that separate till we found out what was going to happen. Because yeah. um, we didn't want to put the kids through more stuff. They've been through enough. And, um, and she, you know, she graduated Kuma Sumlati. She's a very smart girl. She sat back in my, my office. Yeah, her ex-husband was a cop. And she sat in my office for three, four hours, reading all of the evidence, all of the depositions and things that, because, you, know, you know, she was under the impression that, you know, can I kept on telling her I wasn't going to see a day in jail. And she's like, how do you say that? And I said, because the evidence and the proof, once we get to court, I'll be, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, admonished, exonerated. And uh, so sure enough, she went, read it all. She came out of the room with a tear in her eye and she said, oh my God, you're innocent. I'm going to stay with you. And she did. So she stayed with me through the entire trial. And, uh, you know, sure enough, you know, again, it got delayed. Um, yeah, a couple more times because the state attorney had a bomb. It's funny that she had a, I mean, the reason my trial was being delayed was this, were nothing to do with the law. It was strictly the state attorney's schedule. And I'm like, you know, for what I was going through, how the, how this was okay. Yeah. It just shocked me. And it taught me so much stuff about how the system works and you know, just, you know, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know being patient, having faith and, you know, and just, and just trusting things would work out. Uh, you know, and then sure enough, you know, we, we finally went to trial. Um, or I'm sorry. Yeah. So January of 2000, going into 2010, um, I wanted to go out to California to see Saddleback Church yeah. and you know, see her. And I, so I called her and I said, listen, I think I can meet Rick Warren. And she said, it's not that easy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I said, well, okay. You know, who should, and so she gave me the number to, to Rick Warren's secretary. So I called her up and said, Hey, my name's Jim Wayne. I used to play for the Yankees and the angels and I'm coming out to Saddleback and you know, the week after church, after Christmas, is there any way that I could schedule an appointment to come and see Pastor Rick? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Lairs, I know who you are, but Pastor Rick takes the week off after Christmas, after all the services that he does. Mm. He's not going to be around. So I was just, oh, my gosh, I'm bummed. But I still wanted to go see the church. So sure enough, sure enough, Michelle and I uh, went there and we're sitting there during the service. And all of a sudden the pastor says, oh, by the way, uh, Pastor Rick you know, asked for $200,000 worth of donations on Christmas Eve. Between Christmas Eve and today, we received $2.4 million. Wow. And he's here, and he's here personally to thank you. And all of a sudden he comes walking out on stage. <laughs> I grabbed my hair went up in my arms and I said to grab Michelle by the leg. And I said, I'm going to meet him. And again, she said, it's not that easy. I said, well, who do you know? She said, I know the choir director. So, 
I got up. As soon as the service was over, I ran right to the stage. I said, excuse me, sir, sir. And there was a guy named Rick Munchell. He was the choir director. And I said, excuse me. I said, my name is Jim Larratt. I used to play for the Yankees. I said, I used to play for the Yankees. And he looked at me and goes, no, you didn't. <laughs> and I was like, what? He goes, you used to play for my angels. He knew exactly who I was. <laughs> so I'm, I was telling him, I said, is there any way that I could possibly be, you know, be Pastor Rick, my girlfriend? You know, she comes to the church. And he looks over my shoulder and he sees Michelle, my, my now wife. And he sees her and he goes, is that your girlfriend? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, my God. I can't believe she's been praying for you and she never told me who you were. We've been praying for you together in, in the one-on-one class. Wow. So, yeah, so it was a small world as far as that goes. And he goes, absolutely, let's go back and meet Rick. So we went back and we sat down with Pastor Rick. We met him and I told him what I was going through and you know, how my faith was being tested and things were going on. And he said to me, he said, you know, uh, after hearing everything, he put his, arm on, his hand on me and his hand on Michelle and said, let me say a prayer for you. And his exact prayer was, let the jury be just and let them see through the smoke and mirrors of what the state is trying to do. But most of all, give Jimmy the strength to see it to the end. Mm. And at the time, you know, again, I was so thrilled he said a prayer over me. I walked out of there with a, a newfound confidence that things were going to be okay. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't know how profound those words would be. And then three months before my trial, the, uh, all of the evidence about the other driver, the slam dunk evidence of her being drunk, cocaine, divorce papers, no seatbelt, no lights, all of that was not going to be presented to the jury. Because according to the judge in the state, that the only thing the state had approved was who went through the light. And the state said that, because you know, the state has the burden of proof, they said they had three witnesses that had me going through the red light. And you know, the judge, the, the judge would go by what they say, what they stated. And sure enough, he threw out all of that evidence. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a test of faith. And, and my, and my attorney came out to me and said, Jimmy, I'm telling you that right now I can get you probably a plea deal of 10 years probation, five years, no license, but a felony on your record, but you won't have any jail time. Mm-hmm. And he said, I think, you know, you need to think about that. And I came home and just got on the phone with Michelle. We're talking to She said, you know, remember what Pastor Rick said? See it to the end. Have you know, Do you believe that? And I did. And sure enough, I put my faith in God. And, you know, I went back to my attorney and said, David, nope, we're seeing this thing through. And uh, it was a big leap. It was a big leap. But sure enough, after 17 days of trial, the jury was so obvious that some of the evidence got let back in by the mistake of the state. But the most important thing is the state, when they arrested their case, did not have one witness, hmm. not one witness that saw the light. Wow. You know, and, and in fact, one of their one of their own witnesses was the kid, you know, the, they called the kid that was in my car. He actually said the light was yellow as we went, went through the intersection. It was just turning red. It yeah. hadn't turned red yet. So long story short, you know, it, 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 some of the evidence got let back in. The jury... Threw it out in 30 minutes. They were like, the DUI manslaughter, you did not cause this accident. They threw it out. But they did feel like, even though they didn't feel like I was over the legal limit at the time, because I had just had a drink and a shot, and I admitted that yeah. before I left before I left the bar. The accident happened five minutes after I left the bar. So they knew, two of the jurors knew about blood alcohol level. They had gotten their own DUIs. Um, they said, there's no way that alcohol was in your system to, to you know, to, to uh, impair you yeah. there's and they're like we didn't want to even give you the dui 
but because it was covered by you know, TV, in-session TV, court TV covered the whole trial, they felt like they couldn't tell the public that it's okay to do a drink and a shot and get behind the wheel of the car. And so that's why they said, that's why we gave you a DUI. Wow. But, you know, at the time, even the experts said, you know, the butt experts said that I was not probably impaired over the legal limit at the time of the accident, but they got my blood two, two, uh, two hours later. That's when the alcohol was finally into my system. Hmm. Incredible so was, story. Yeah, it was it was a crazy time, and then you know the, the biggest thing that happened during that time. Uh, again, Michelle and I got really close. She stayed with me through the entire trial. And as soon as the trial was over with, the uh, the judge just said, "Where do you want to go?" Because the state, you know, he knew the state should have never had this case go to court. Yeah. And he said, "You know, I normally you're on a one year probation for DUI, but you can go wherever you want. Just let me know where you're going." And I called up Michelle and I said, "What do you think?" You want to try to? I could either go to Cincinnati with my family, or I can come out to California. We can see if we can make this work. And uh, I said I would really like to come there and be a part of the church and get involved with Saddleback, and you know really start my walk with God. And uh, she said, "Yeah, come on out. I think we can do this." And so the boys and I moved out there. I, you know, I was able to take them with me. Uh, we we moved out there. We lived separately for about two years. And after the two years, after her girls got to meet the boys and we felt like they were comfortable with each other, we decided to move in together. And, uh, you know, we we, uh, we, were, we were moving in in January. We moved in together in January. We were supposed to get married in February. And, you know, we had a uh, – we were picking dates. And her grandmother was in the hospital. She had a heart attack and she was passing away. While we were in the hospital saying goodbye to her, because we knew she was, you know, she was 86. She had been – the long life it wasn't really too shocking yeah but while we were saying goodbye to her her michelle's mother had an aneurysm burst right there in the hospital and within 48 hours we lost both of them wow yeah and so this was in 2013 and so we postponed the wedding and uh you know it was it was one of those things that you know for her father who lost his mom his wife and his mom in the same week you know, it was at, at one point there, there was two of you know, his, his wife and his mother, his wife and his mom were both on life support in the same unit. I mean, it was crazy. Oh. Um, yeah. So after we got through that, finally in 2016, Michelle came to me and she said, I'm ready. Let's do this. And so she was, she was one of the, she ran into a lady that uh, lived right down in Dana Point Beach, had this beautiful clubhouse on the beach that we could get married at, that she was going to give to us. All we had to do was pay the cleaning fee. And so we said, okay, we want to do it in March. And so the woman checked with the, the, the board, and the only day that it was available in March was March 25th, 2016. It was Good Friday. Good Friday. Yep. That's and great. We just, and when she came to us and said that, we looked at each other and we said, this is God. You know, this is what we're supposed to do. He's yeah. blessing us. So I went to Saddleback Church and you know, asked them if they would marry us. And of course, they wouldn't marry us because we had been living together. And they mm-hmm. wanted me to move out. They wanted me to move out of the house for a year. And I'm like, no, you know, we want to get married now. We can, you know, we can do when we're ready. Yeah. So I, there was another pastor that I had met uh, through, through uh, a, a, for a men's group. And I went to him and he said, Jimmy, the only thing that you're not doing right like in your life is living with Michelle. I will marry you and get this done. And sure enough, he did. He married us, a guy named Kenny Luck. And Kenny, Kenny's you know, got a lot of great things going on right now with, with what he's doing with God. Um, but 
you know, he so he married us. We got married, and um, the rest is history. Man, I love that. I'm I'm so glad that you just opened that up and shared it because there was a lot of questions I had. You answered every single one of them in that story because it really is this uh, 10-year journey, almost a nine-year journey from Christmas 07 to marrying in March of 2016. I don't want to take too much of your time and we'll have to do another podcast where we'll, we'll do some more questions on different aspects of your of your walk with the Lord. But let's close it with this. We asked this question to all of our guests here on the show, but I think it's kind of pertinent to where God has brought you to today. So right now, Jim Lair, it's where the Lord has you today, 2019. What are you learning from him? What is he teaching you that maybe you never really have learned before in the walk that you have with him in the season of life that he has you in now? You know, it's amazing to me the strength that God gives you when you do walk with him daily. And you're able to, when you're walking with God on a daily basis, you know, my wife and I both, you know, we read revelations together. We, we, we are so blessed with what we have. We know that God has been behind it. And so our daily readings and our daily, and you know, we're in two or three different couples groups and church groups together. Yeah. Um, it's just a daily walk that we do with God every day that strengthens me and I learn something different every day because when I know that I, I always say when I put that armor on in the morning when I say my prayer to God in the morning before I walk out that door because we know the devil's waiting for us once we walk out that door because we're God people absolutely um you know I walk out I put that armor on and I say my prayer and I walk out and I know that if, if I can do something that day to help somebody else or be of service to somebody else then I know that God is working in my life. And that's, that's basically what my wife and I do every day when we wake up before we walk out, is that what can we do today to be a service to someone else and make someone else's life either better or be there for their comfort? Hmm. And to me, I think that's the biggest blessing that God has given me. Listen, I have all kinds of World Series moments and home runs and memories, and, but all that stuff, it pales in comparison to what I've gotten and what God has given me every single day uh, since I fully committed myself to God. And, you know, the other night I gave a speech at a church in California yep. to 200, 200 guys in a men's group and 12 guys came forward to get saved that night because of my story. That's I mean, when I knew, that's I knew it. what I was doing. Yeah, that's, that's what I knew I was doing, what was right. Oh, I mean, listen, anything else that you do in your entire life doesn't matter if you or isn't anything bigger. You could hit home runs against the Braves in every World Series, and it doesn't matter except for moments like you just described when 12 guys yep. are coming up and saying yes and their eternal soul is saved. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Jim Lairitz, this has been great. Best wishes to you, and thanks for joining us. All right, Jason. Thanks for having me. Fascinating conversation there with Jim Lairitz, two-time World Series champion, and uh, many thanks to Jim for joining us here on Sports Spectrum's podcast. You can give him a follow over on his social media page. His Twitter page is the Real Jay Layritz. And if you just search Jim Layritz, he's there. Uh, and you can give him a follow. Uh, definitely check him out. Let him know that you heard his story here on Sports Spectrum. As transparent a conversation as we've ever had, uh, in all honesty, and one that does not uh, feature the sort of traditional Christian walk that we get from a lot of athletes. Uh, this is a guy who struggled. This is a guy who walked uh, into the valleys in many ways to some of the things that he's been through with divorce, custody battles, and you know certainly the DUI and the accident and the trial. And it takes him all the way to where he is today. 
uh, just wanting to live his life for Jesus, attending Saddleback Church, uh, the Rick Warren Purpose Driven Life book, making such a difference in his life, just such a cool uh, story. And God can turn a mess into a masterpiece for anyone, quite honestly. And Jim's a great testimony and a great example of that. So we appreciate Jim for joining us here on Sports Spectrum. We also want to thank our sponsors, Compassion International. $38 a month allows you to release a child from poverty with food, education, medical care, and vocational training, all done in Jesus' name, $38 a month. Consider releasing a child by sponsoring them through Compassion. Go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum, Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum, and consider sponsoring a child today. Many thanks for listening. We really do appreciate you. If this is the first time you've ever heard of Sports Spectrum, do us a favor, click that subscribe button and never miss an episode of the Sports Spectrum podcast. You can also find us on our social media pages to search Sports Spectrum. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and of course, YouTube. And all of our content can be found at sportspectrum.com. Thanks for listening. We love you guys. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode of Sports Spectrum's podcast. Have a great rest of your day.